Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Lung Cancer Voices podcast. And an old friend of the uh, podcast series is is back with us, Dr. David Gandara from UC Davis in Sacramento in Northern California. Uh, Dr. Gandara has been a guest on a couple of podcasts uh, on this series before, including one right at the beginning with, uh, with Dr. Natasha Lale. Just by way of introduction, Dr. Gandara is really internationally uh, renowned thoracic oncologist. He's Professor Emeritus at UC Davis. He's a past president of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. Um, he's a co-director of the Center of Experimental Therapeutics at UC Davis and the chief medical officer for the International Society for Liquid Biopsies. It's so difficult to imagine uh, anyone more qualified. So Dr. Gandara, welcome. Welcome back to the pod. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just in uh, Vancouver for your annual lung cancer meeting and certainly enjoyed interacting with you and all the other folks there. That's right. Well, and that's a beautiful segue. It was at that meeting, the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference, that I, I uh, cornered you and asked you to, to come back on the podcast, really to do a reprise sort of, of what you were talking about at the conference. Uh, and so the, the topic of today is, is immunotherapy in lung cancer how have we got to where we are and, and where is the future going? Because immunotherapy seems to be, you know, almost everybody with lung cancer is either going to get immunotherapy at some point, or at least we're thinking about it, or if not appropriate for them, we're being asked about it. So hopefully you can take us a path through the sort of complex forest of immunotherapy. Maybe I'll start with, but maybe you, you could just introduce us to, you know, as a reminder, what is immunotherapy, particularly in, in lung cancer? Sure, sure. Well, for uh, the audience that's listening to this, uh, if you've heard my prior podcast, you know I like to uh, give uh, analogies when I speak to patients and their caregivers because, you know, I think too many physicians speak in technical terms and the patient hears what they're saying, but they may not necessarily understand it. And these days, of course, the patient has been to Dr. Google and they've looked up everything on the internet. And sometimes that's really helpful and sometimes it's confusing. So the way I explain immunotherapy, and I'm talking about the current checkpoint immunotherapy, not vaccines or other sorts of immunotherapy, is first that it's totally different from anything we've ever had before, such as chemotherapy or targeted therapy. So some of you listening to this, either you or spouse, someone may have, let's say an EGFR mutated lung cancer or an ALK fusion lung cancer, and they get a, a pill, a targeted therapy. So those targeted therapies actually kill cancer cells and chemotherapy kills cancer cells. Checkpoint immunotherapy doesn't kill cancer cells. And that's a very hard thing for people to understand, whether they're a physician or a patient. 
the premise here is that cancer develops in all of us. We have a malignant cell that comes along, but our immune system recognizes it the same way that they do, uh, that it does a bacteria or a virus. And it sends in the T cells, those cells that are cytotoxic. And it is the T cells that get rid of the bacteria, or in this case, kill that single malignant cell, and it never turns into a clinical cancer. So of course, cancer is pretty smart. Uh, one of my colleagues says, uh, never bet against the big C, which he is referring to cancer. So cancer, you know, is wants to survive, and it has figured out a way to get around the immune system. And it has some defense mechanisms. One of those is a protein on the surface of a cancer cell, which can develop called PDL1, programmed death ligand like one. So this PDL1 helps to make a growing cancer invisible. And that's just the term that I use. It makes it invisible to the immune system. So what that means is your immune system is looking out for anything bad so it can go handle it. It doesn't see this growing cancer if that cancer has this uh, mechanism, we call it immune evasion. So uh, again, the way I explain this to my parents is I say, in this case, that cancer is like a stealth bomber. In other words, you, you all have heard about stealth bombers and how radar can't detect a stealth bomber. Well, in this case, the cancer is invisible and the cancer can grow. Now, the checkpoint immunotherapeutics fit into this uh, analogy very well because what they do is they block that PDL1 and all of a sudden the immune system wakes up and says, oh my gosh, there's a cancer here. And the, it is the immune system, the T cells, the other immunoreactive cells that go in and do the killing and kill the cancer. So that's the first thing that I think that's really important is this is totally different than anything we've ever had. And it also means that when we give chemotherapy and then you stop chemotherapy, it's gone and the effects are gone. When we give targeted therapy, like an EGFR inhibitor and you stop it, it's gone after a few days. But when you stop immunotherapy, sometimes the effects on the immune system last for the lifetime of that patient, even after a very few doses. So again, uh, this is just such a different concept. It's worth explaining it to patients in a way they can understand. I like your example of invisibility. Just this past week, I've been watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy with my son. I sometimes use a similar analogy, but if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings movie, you know, Frodo Baggins or Bilbo has this magic ring. When he puts it on, he's invisible, and then he takes it off, and the orcs can come and get him. Um, of course, the analogy falls down because the orcs are bad, and we don't. And whereas the T cells in this situation are good, but th that idea that the drugs uh, allow the ring to be taken off and the the cancer to be visible, or Harry Potter. I like I like that. I'll have to put that into my analogy book. <laughs> Well, if you're or Harry Potter, if you're a Harry Potter fan, he has an invisible yes. cloak yes. that he can sneak around Hogwarts and take uh -huh. it off and uh, 
so, so that that's a beautiful explanation of, of how immunotherapy is different to other cancer drugs and and that, that analogy of, of, of blocking pdl1 and allowing the immune system um, uh, sort of access to the cancer how, how long have, have we been using these drugs i mean what, could, could you sort of give us just a brief history of, of then actually the immunotherapy in the clinic well, we've been attempting to give immunotherapy for 40 years, but these checkpoint inhibitors and some early successes, uh, drugs that work in different ways uh, have been successful. But these checkpoint inhibitors, it's really a, a little over 10 years. And initially they were used in cancers that had previously received other treatments like chemotherapy. And they were shown to be effective, not in everyone, but in enough patients that they started to get approved by the FDA in the United States and through the Canadian system and around the world. And then of course, when you find a treatment that is effective in patients who've had other treatment, you wanna see, well, how does it do in patients who never had any treatment? And you start with the patients with the most advanced cancer that is stage four, because typically, if a treatment doesn't work in stage four, it's not likely to work in an earlier stage. And, and also those patients with stage four disease are the ones most needing treatment. So it was taken into what we call first line treatment. That means patients hadn't had any other treatment. And it turns out that either together with chemotherapy or by itself, it's quite effective. And again, the thing that differentiates these drugs from chemotherapy or targeted therapy is this long lasting effect. So that even after a patient has had what we call progressive disease, in other words, maybe they benefited for a year or two and then the cancer started to grow, they still live longer. And that's totally unique with this drug, uh, this drug class. So we have a term for this. We call it uh, treatment beyond progression. But what it means is we now have some patients with stage four lung cancer or other cancers, melanoma, variety of other things, where even though the treatment has been stopped years ago, they remain in remission and are probably cured in some situations. So for someone who's treated lung cancer for many years, this is just unbelievable. But again, it's, it's a very different situation from chemotherapy can work really well. Targeted therapy can work really well, but it's rarely curative in patients with metastatic lung cancer, at least. So David, I was going to ask you that specific question then. So typically, you know, our training is that stage four lung cancer is not a curable condition. And our goals when we sit down with our patients is to try and help them with quality of life and quantity of life, maximizing quality and quantity in, in line with their goals when they get a diagnosis like that. But we've been very reticent to ever say that stage four lung cancer is curable. But like, like you, I have many patients now who finished immunotherapy years ago and are living normally, I, I, I do you think we're ready to say that some of our patients are cured from stage four lung cancer? 
or is it still still too soon? I think so. I think we're ready to say that. In an individual patient, of course, it's always difficult because we don't know. I mean, we've only had the drugs again for 12 or a little over a year. So we don't know that there couldn't be very late relapses. But again, if you think about how these drugs are different from the other drugs, those effects on your T cells, your immune cells could still be there even after the patient came off the drug five or 10 years ago. Right. Yeah, uh, we've, and now in some research studies, of course, these drugs were in Canada a while ago, but they've been routinely in lung cancer practice in, in Canada since about 2016, 2017, around, around then. So you, you very nicely explained, you, you know, we've got improved survival and sometimes for many, many years, with these drugs either on their own or, or with chemotherapy. Are there people that we shouldn't be giving immunotherapy to that you wouldn't recommend immunotherapy? For sure. And again, uh, I know that uh, some people listening to this podcast don't have lung cancer. They might have breast cancer or colon cancer, but I'll speak primarily uh, about uh, lung cancer because that's what I have the most experience with, and also it's unique. Lung cancer is the most complicated, non-small cell lung cancer I'm talking about, which is about 80% of all lung cancers. It's very complicated in terms of what we call genomics. That is the mutations and other abnormalities that cause the cancer or drive the cancer's growth. And in non-small cell lung cancer, compared to any other cancer type, we now have about 10 of these, we call them oncogenes, genes that are associated with cancer that drive growth that we know we can test for by using molecular testing. If, if any of you have non-small cell lung cancer, you know you underwent that sort of testing. And if we identify those mutations in some of them, we have treatments that are very effective that can be given. They're typically pills, oral. These are so-called tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, against the targets. And the benefits can be really dramatic. Those are the patients, paradoxically, who don't benefit from checkpoint immunotherapy. And that's very hard for patients to understand. And I, I actually have had situations, not today necessarily, because I think patients are becoming more familiar with this, but several years ago where I would have a patient come back and I would say, oh, you're so lucky. We found that your cancer has an EGFR mutation and we can give you these drugs uh, that are pills and they're well-tolerated and uh, the response rate is 80% and you're gonna live a long time. And they said, oh, but I don't want that. I heard about this new immunotherapy, that's what I want. So why, don't, why doesn't immunotherapy work in those oncogene-driven cancers? And there are really several reasons. But one is that that PDL one test that we do is kind of a false lead if you have one of these mutated lung cancers and that it doesn't tell the whole story. And Paul, uh, yeah, I'll try to explain this in a way that our patients on the line can understand, but we measure that 
that protein, remember the one that makes it invisible, we measure it in the tumor cell. We can also measure it in the area around the tumor cell where all those lymphocytes, the T cells are hanging out. And in the oncogene driven cancers, they may have a lot of the PDL1 on the tumor cell, but they don't have it on the lymphocytes. And what that means is that even if you block the PDL1, there are no lymphocytes to come in and kill the cancer. And then there's another molecular test that we do called tumor mutational burden. That's just how many mutations your cancer has. And it's really, really low in the oncogene driven cancer. So those are the people that should not get immunotherapy until maybe down the line, but certainly not first line. And so the algorithm, kind of the roadmap that oncologists use uh, says, number one, before you treat, you test molecular testing. You see if the patient has one of these oncogenes. If they do, then in many instances, you can give them an oral therapy, one of these TKIs. If they do not, then they become candidates for immunotherapy. And depending on how extensive a testing you do, uh, maybe 40% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer will have one of these oncogenes. So one thing that we always tell patients is, you know, they want to start on therapy right away. And we say, you know, would you rather just get something off the shelf, which might not help you? Or would you rather wait a week or two until we have a therapy specifically for you? And I almost never have a patient who says, I'm not going to wait. I mean, I know other oncologists might sometimes say, oh, my patient doesn't want to wait. Well, I've never had one of those patients. When I tell them, would you rather have something for you? They say, yes. And in reality, it's rarely an emergency to have to treat this kind of patient. When I say an emergency, within a week or so. So that's the algorithm. And it turns out in many situations, we get the answers back right away. And within a week or two, you can start treatment on the patient. Yeah. Yeah. And that's our experience in Ottawa, that we get these tests back very quickly. And and uh, I, I'm like you, David, I don't remember somebody saying to me, no, no, I have to start now something and not knowing if it's the right, the right choice. And, and most people are very comfortable waiting. And I think also we work in a, uh, we work in a very collaborative manner, don't we? So, uh, so if there is something that's very urgent, we go to our pathologist and say, well, can I have an answer? You know, can you run the test more quickly? And at least our, our pathologists can do that. Can I can I just expand the, the conversation a little bit? So we talked about who doesn't get, who shouldn't get immunotherapy if you have the driver mutations. And then people who don't have these, these oncogene mutations where we, we are giving immunotherapy either with or without chemo. But there have been some changes recently to expand because we've really been talking about stage four. There's been, we're now moving immunotherapy into patients who have earlier stages of disease where uh, historically, we've said that these are curable, um, but now maybe more curable with immunotherapy. Maybe could I ask you to touch on that? Okay, so Paul, you've you've given me a challenge. So we only have a few minutes. We could spend the next two hours talking just about this topic, because and this is for all the patients and their caregivers who might hear this. 
it's really complicated. And so if you were a patient with early stage, and I'll just say, you know, there are four stages, right? Stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. And again, we're talking about non-small cell lung cancer, although some of these concepts about giving immunotherapy in early stage disease, they're, they're happening in other cancers as well. But Paul is specifically asking about non-small cell lung cancer. There have been several recent studies that show that a patient who comes in with a, a fairly early non-small cell lung cancer, like a stage two, where in the past, we would have given that patient uh, surgery alone. And now more recently, within the last 15 years ago, and actually the Canadian group has led a lot of this work, showing that chemotherapy can improve the cure rate if you give it after surgical resection. So that's called adjuvant after. And then uh, we also had studies saying that if you give chemotherapy before surgery in some patients, and again, that's the complicated part is who gets what, but that if you do that, that's also beneficial. Well, now somebody said, well, we have these great immunotherapy drugs. What about them? And so there are data now over the last five years showing that you could give one of these immunotherapy drugs either before surgery or after surgery. And we have very nice, large studies now showing that it can be effective. Initially, it was felt that you should do this by itself. And what I mean is if immunotherapy works in some patients by itself in metastatic disease, could it work by itself in early? And now we're finding out that you need the chemotherapy. So I know a lot of patients say, oh, gee, I was hoping I could get away from chemotherapy, only get immunotherapy. In these situations early on, it works best together with chemotherapy. The quandary is what patients should get which approach. And it's, it's complicated. So I can tell you in my own practice, what I do as a patient in this situation, the first thing is we present that patient's case to a lung cancer tumor board. So we can all talk it over with our surgeons and our radiation oncologists. And we have the radiologist show the scans and the pathologists show that patient's cancer under the microscope. And we talk about the PDL1 level and other things. And we all get together and we decide, how are we going to manage this patient? You know, is the patient a surgical candidate? Because sometimes the patient might not be a surgical candidate because they have bad heart disease, for example. At any rate, is the patient a surgical candidate? Should we give them some sort of therapy before they go to surgery? Or is it best to take that patient to surgery, take out the cancer, and then give the adjuvant treatment with chemotherapy and immunotherapy, if, assuming it's indicated afterwards. So I don't think we can resolve that on this podcast. No, but I could maybe just uh, give a bit of Canadian context for the Canadian listeners. Uh, so the, the neoadjuvant approach of chemotherapy and immunotherapy before surgery is making its way through the regulatory system quite smoothly uh, in Canada and is available at the moment. The adjuvant approach of giving immunotherapy after surgery 
is lagging a little bit behind the regulatory uh, cogs are turning a bit more slowly and maybe because the the we're waiting for like i suppose a little bit more more data but um it's very exciting that though that we're thinking of now stage two stage three stage four if i was to ask you dr gandara to 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 get out your crystal ball because i dropped my crystal ball and smashed so i can't see the future of lung cancer as clearly as you can maybe where, where do you think is the next step with immunotherapy to take what's been a big leap forward but still still lung cancer is a fatal disease for many many people so wh where do you see the next the next big move in immunotherapy well of course there're going to be new drugs and uh, already we have other sorts of immunotherapy that work in different ways. One of those just had a very positive large study in melanoma, the, the skin cancer, malignant melanoma. Uh, so those are going to come along. But Paul, when you introduced me, you said that I was also uh, the chief medical officer for this International Society of Liquid Biopsy. So I might just go there because that's one of the future things that's happening is when we say liquid biopsy, again, that concept patient says, what in the world are you talking about? How can you do a liquid biopsy? So what we really mean is that in order to diagnose a patient's cancer, we do a biopsy. Uh, we take a piece of the cancer out and that can be done through a needle of a CT scan or a variety of other ways. But <clears throat> liquid biopsy means to be able to look for the same abnormalities that are present on molecular testing or immunologic testing to look for the same things we can test for in a tissue biopsy, but to do it in blood. This is now uh, a fast moving uh, area in non-small cell lung cancer, those patients that have those mutated lung cancers, the oncogen, we're already using this for several years as a standard of care. So. Uh, that we could take a patient with a, uh, an abner, uh, a cancer that's, let's say, an EGFR mutated, and when it quits responding to treatment, instead of doing another biopsy, we could take a, a little bit of blood and we could analyze it and we can find out why did that cancer become resistant. And then give an additional therapy that hits that mechanism of resistance and the patient goes back into remission. And I have some recent cases that are just spectacular where we've used liquid biopsy to do that. Well, what about in those early stage cases? Here, there is a lot of potential for us to be able to do a blood test, let's say after surgery and be able to predict, will that patient be a long-term survivor or they do they need additional treatment and some of you will have heard the term mrd minimal residual disease that's not something that you can assess by a biopsy because the tumor has already been removed but it is something you can look for on blood so i think to me that is another piece of the puzzle and I think we're going to have that information going forward. And hopefully it will allow us, again, that the, the key is individualizing treatment. 
I was just on a call actually earlier today with um, the on Ontario province about how we might implement liquid biopsies uh, into into public practice in Ontario's. So they're, they're, they're broadly available through research studies and through private pay, but not not routine care at the moment. Uh, are liquid biopsies routinely available in in the US, uh, David? I mean, you're in a major academic center. Is it a difference between you and if you were you know, up the road in Napa Valley somewhere? They are uh, FDA approved. So by the regulatory authorities in the United States. And again, I realize some of uh, the patients listening to this, you might have different kinds of cancers, but <clears throat> Medicare covers uh, liquid biopsy. Most of the major insurance companies cover liquid biopsy. And, and we're just now finding out when you should you do a liquid biopsy instead of a, let's say a repeat tissue biopsy or, or, or when should the liquid biopsy be, be not used because it's not really going to change that patient's management. But yes, liquid biopsies are readily available. Uh, our Lung Cancer Association, IASLC, International Association for Study of Lung Cancer has guidelines for liquid biopsy. We've now published two of them. I'm the senior author and it gives uh, a broad perspective for people, um, oncologists all around the world about our perspective on when they should be used, when they should not be used, uh, what kind of assay is best in certain situations, all those sorts of things. So we've been chatting for a while now. So I, I'm probably gonna have to invite you back again for another, another podcast, uh, uh, David. We've covered what is immunotherapy, some of the history, uh, its use in stage four, um, places where it's maybe shouldn't be used if people have specific mutations that can be targeted with, with oral therapies, the move into earlier stage of disease, the use of liquid biopsies uh, to, for resistance, new drugs coming. Are there any things that you feel like should have asked you that I haven't? That the only one that I was kind of going to ask is, is about side effects of these drugs. What's your experience there? Are these generally very safe or side effects manageable? Right. So for immunotherapy, again, Paul, we need about another hour. Yes. <laughs> but we call these things itis. So itis means inflammation of. So again, the way I explain this to my patients is I gave that whole analogy about, you know, the cancer is invisible and you're going to block that protein that makes it invisible and open it up so that your immune system can react to it. Well, sometimes the immune system isn't so smart. And so it, once it is kind of awakened by these drugs, it ends up thinking some other part of your body is abnormal and it should try to fight it. Skin rash is very common with these drugs. And what is happening is that your body thinks your skin is uh, something bad and it goes in and it causes a rash and it itches. So if you think about this, this is what happens with autoimmune diseases such as lupus. I think a lot of you on the podcast know you've heard about lupus or you've had people, uh, well, these drugs don't cause lupus, but what I'm saying is one of the, one of the, manifestations of lupus is a skin rash. 
So that's a simple example. But lupus can also attack the kidneys or the lungs or other organs. Well, in this situation, those can be side effects of these drugs. And so we call that a pneumonitis. So that means an inflammation of the lung and the pulmonary system, but it can happen in many, many organs. So an oncologist who's giving these drugs will do the usual tests that we do if somebody's getting chemotherapy, they'll do blood counts and they'll do chemistries and liver function tests because the liver could be affected. But they will also periodically check for what we call endocrine function. In other words, your thyroid function, your adrenal gland function, because those sorts of organs could also be affected. In, in reality, uh, Paul knows quite well this rarely could affect lots of areas of your body. So the oncologist has to become more like he has to become an endocrinologist and a cardiologist and so forth and so on. We just have to be aware. And we try to make sure that patients are also aware. In other words, we give them extensive information about if you start feeling bad, you know, could it be one of these things, how to get a hold of us, when to go to the emergency department, uh, because most patients will tolerate these drugs quite well, but there are a significant proportion of patients that will have either mild or severe side effects, uh, many of which can be treated and the patient returns to the therapy. That's a, sometimes I think a, a struggle that some oncologists have is when we we say, well, actually, you can get an itis affecting any part of the body from immunotherapy, the liver or lungs or kidneys or skin, as you've, as you've outlined, or diarrhea. And um, it sounds very scary uh, to say, well, this, this drug could affect any part of your body. But of course, the reality is it's quite uncommon to do any of that at any serious level. I mean, I mean, some patients, yes, of course, do have more profound side effects, but the majority of people have in my experience, these have no side effects or very minor, very minor issues, and, and certainly, you know, on average, much easier to tolerate than chemotherapy. Would would you say? I think so. Yeah. Well, that well, that's a tour de force. We've we've gone through immunotherapy. We haven't touched on other areas of like small cell lung cancer or mesotheliomas or other other types of lung cancer where immunotherapy is um, making a mark, and those will be the topics of other other podcasts and I would advise people to look out for a recent one with Dr. Dan Bredner on EGFR positive lung cancer, uh, Dr. Jeff Rothenstein who'll be talking about uh, ALK lung cancer, Dr. Sarah Moore will be talking about medical assistance in dying for people with lung cancer which is you know, a different topic for us on the podcast uh, and Dr. Penny Bradbury uh, who's our national research lead will be talking about uh, mesothelioma where there's been some big advances in in immunotherapy as well. So um, please look out for future Lung Cancer Voices episodes. If you've heard something uh, from Dr. Gandara that is pertinent to you and you have further questions, you can go to the lungcancercanada.ca website, or of course you can speak to your, your oncologist or your, your oncology team. But I should finish off Dr. Gandara, thank you so much. Uh, you're so knowledgeable, you explain things so beautifully and um, elegantly and understandably. I really appreciate you spending time with us again. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us 
on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.